Welcome to the Audacity Church Podcast. We pray that you are blessed by what you hear today. We love to hear stories of what God is doing in people's lives. Take some time to share your story of how God is working in your life and email us at amen at loveservego.com. Now prepare your heart to hear from God today. Turn this song up a little bit, man. This is a jam from 1995 happening right now. This is a song called One of Us by Joanne Osborne. And I'm not going to lie because I was born in 1988. I had to Google this song. <laughs> and uh, sorry if that offends any of you here. Um, but I love I, w- I loved watching the video for it because she has like the perfect like 90s hair it's like super big and curly apparently all women in the 90s got ready by like sticking a fork in a light socket from what i can tell um so it's it's an awesome video and it's a it's a great song and the reason um we we've been kind of playing a different song in our bumper video each week because we've been kind of looking at the lyrics in that song of kind of like what does culture uh say about the church and and that song's really interesting because you might have caught in the lyrics what if god was one of us just a stranger, just a slob like one of us. That's like my favorite line, just the word slob in there. It's, it's awesome. Uh, just a stranger on a bus trying to find his way home. And uh, as Ronnie already said, I'm Tyson. And uh, man, never do that introduction again. I got tired listening to that. So I need a nap. Um, but anyways, I am, I am so excited to be here and to be sharing on this and taking a week in this series. As Ronnie was saying, I think it is so important. And we call the series Toxic Church, as you can see. We've got it everywhere. These vats do not have any dangerous chemicals. I just want you to know, if you're here for the first time and you're concerned, we've checked it out. They're empty, not radioactive. Your kids are safe. So just want to make that clear. Um, but you might be like, why are you calling it Toxic Church? Like, what's, what's that about? It's not... It's not that we want to hate on the church in any way, right? We're, we are a church, and we, we love the church, and we believe that the local church is the hope of the world and the body of Christ. And So we're in no ways bashing the church in any way, but we are looking at sometimes the church, instead of being life-giving, instead of being grace-filled, instead of serving others, it does become toxic. And there's different ways that so it absolutely does the opposite of what it's supposed to do. And so last week, Ronnie did a great job talking about the legalistic church and and how uh, the legalistic church is it's just a system of religion, and it's about trying to please God and gain his acceptance. It doesn't have a relationship with Jesus, and that is not the gospel. God calls us to a relationship, not following a bunch of rules. And this week, we're going to look at the hypocritical church. And that's something you hear, like, leveled against the church, right? Like, don't go to church. It's full of a bunch of hypocrites. I mean, to me, to a certain extent, that's like saying, you know, don't go to the gym because there's overweight people there. Like, it's sort of, sort of ridiculous criticism. But, but I think it, it, the criticism to the church is, is pretty valid in that often the people look at the church and what the church should be, and then they look at what the church actually is and how it interacts in culture, and it doesn't add up. And so people say... They're a bunch of hypocrites. And, and um, with this, in this series, we've been looking at what culture has to say and what philosophy has to say and then ultimately what Jesus has to say. And I'm going to do that today. And we want to listen to those critiques because they help us see where we can get off. Um, we, we want to help us see where the church can become toxic. We don't want to just ignore that critique from culture or ignore the critique from philosophy. We want to welcome it so we can learn from it, so we can know what to avoid. And uh, 
and, and I'll be I'll be really honest. Some of the stuff we're talking about today, the story we're looking at today, it confronts some pretty tough stuff, some difficult things maybe to talk about, racism, sexism, classism, whatever ism else you want to put in there, right? The ancient Israelites had ites, like the Hittites, the Canaanites, and then we just got isms, communism, whatever um, you want to put in there. Um, but here's the thing. It's really easy when you talk about those types of things to be like, oh, yeah, preach it, Tyson. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's a problem with them out there. But what I'm hoping the Holy Spirit can do with my words today is that it's not just a problem out there with them. It's a problem in here with us. And to take it one step further, it's a problem in here with me. These are issues of the heart. These are things that only Jesus can really help us work through. And so um, first we're going to take a look at um, what culture has to say about religion. And uh, what I'm saying is how we need to, it's not just a problem out there with them, it's a problem in here with us. In the book of James, the Bible says, uh, it relates scripture to looking in a mirror. How many when you look in a mirror? I mean, maybe on a good day, you look in the mirror and you're like, man, that is a good-looking guy or good-looking woman. Um, I've never looked in a mirror and thought, hey, there's a good-looking woman. I just want to make that clear. Um, but uh, but most likely, what you probably do is like, oh, my gosh, like what? Is I need to shave. like, Or what is that on my face? Or, oh, my gosh, kids put chocolate chip cookies all over me. I just now figured it out. So you tend to focus on the problems when you look in a mirror, right? So let's kind of what scripture does. Sometimes when we look in the mirror of scripture, we see our problems. We see the areas that we need to change. Sometimes it's not a pleasant experience. So scripture is supposed to be that mirror, but what we like to use it as is a, a telescope, right? We want to zoom in on somebody else's problem, someone else's issue, but the Bible isn't supposed to be a telescope. It's supposed to be a mirror. It's supposed to make us look at ourselves. Um, so I already mentioned kind of something that culture has to say, and I was talking about this song earlier. Um, one of us but I'm just going to read another quote here from a celebrity, and this particular celebrity has said lots of quotes that have got her in trouble, but anyways, I'm going to read this one. It's from Gwyneth Paltrow, and she says, religion is the cause of all the problems in the world. Painting with pretty broad strokes there. I don't believe in organized religion at all. It's what separates people. One religion just represents fragments. It causes war. More people have died because of religious conflict than any other reason. And if you've been online and read any comment boards, you've heard people say stuff like that. Uh, sometimes just to throw my life down the toilet for a little bit, I will read comments and political and religious, religious blogs, just lose all hope in humanity, and then Jesus has to put you back together. Um, but I have heard that criticism a, a lot, right? Religion just divides us. Religion just separates us. Religion causes conflict. And what should our response be to that critique? Well, to a certain extent, it should be, yeah, you're right. We, we can't deny that in human history. Religion has done that. It has divided people. People have used it to oppress other people. It's absolutely true. But the problem is, with culture's critique like that, it still leaves us stuck. Because there's still something you can see in our culture that, you call it whatever you want, spirituality, transcendence, God. We're looking for something, right? So as much as we might want to say, hey, religion just divides us and just throw it out, we can't really because there's still something. We know there's something more, and culture knows that. And so it still leaves us stuck. Culture's critique is, is right, but it's not helpful. What does philosophy say about religion? Um, we've been looking at basically kind of three key philosophers in this series, Karl Marx and Nietzsche and Freud. Um, 
She may have studied them in school or whatever. I am not a philosophy professor by any means. I try to say philosophical things, and my wife usually tells me it sounds lame. And, but uh, Marx, we're, we're just, I mean, you could talk about a lot of things with him, but I'm just going to read a couple quotes from him, and then we're going to specifically focus on what he thought of religion. And one of the quotes from Karl Marx is that religion is the opium of the masses. Now, in Marx's time, opium would have still been often used as a painkiller, not just like just a recreational drug or something. Um, so he's saying, in this next quote, kind of speaks to that too, religion is the impotence of the human mind to deal with the occurrences it cannot understand. So Marx believes people just believe in religion just because they need something to numb their pain, to forget about their life, to, to process the things that they can't understand. He says, the first requisite for the happiness of people is the abolition of religion. Religion, religion is indeed the self-consciousness and self-esteem of a man who has either not yet won through to himself or has already lost himself again. And then this is, I think, one of the most powerful quotes from him. He says, religion is the sigh of the oppressed creature, the heart of a heartless world, and the soul of a soulless conditions. It is the opium of the people. Marx believed that religion is a way to justify your nation or class, and the result is always exclusion and suppression. So Freud, he really believes that religion is a way that you justify yourself psychologically, right? You do something wrong, but you create a system that makes you pay in some way, which eases your conscience. So Marx believed that religion is a way you justify yourself sociologically. So you create a system that somehow makes you feel better about your class or your state or whatever it might be or why you look down on some type of class or group of people. And once again, what do, what do, what do we do with this critique? Because to a certain extent, again, it, it's right on. And it's kind of one of those things is once you see it, you can't not see it again. So if, if, you've, if you've listened to this or you've thought along these lines or you've come to these same conclusions, you can't really shake it. You can't ignore it. So what do we do with it? It's kind of like, have you ever seen some of those pictures where it's like kind of two pictures at once and the first time you stare at it, it's like a cow or something and then you see there's actually like a child like inverse in there. Like this actually happened the other day. I was out with... Um, some good friends of ours who are here visiting from Minnesota, Jenny and Joel Juni, right up there. They are awesome. They came all the way just to hear me preach today. Not really, but they have a lot of friends here. But um, anyways, I'm glad that they're here today. We were at a coffee shop, and there's this picture where there's like steam coming up from the coffee cup. And I've, I've been to this place many, many times, and I never noticed until my friends pointed it out to me that in the steam of the coffee cup is like the figure of a woman, Right? I never noticed that before, but once they pointed it out to me, it's the only stinking thing I could see every time I looked over there. Like, I, can, I could not see steam on a coffee cup anymore. And so it's the same way. Once we kind of hear this critique of the church, once we hear kind of what Marx is saying, we can't just, like, ignore it. can't shake it off. Now it's going to be the only thing that we see. So what do we do with it? Because the truth is just like culture still leaves us stuck, Marx still leaves us stuck too. And here's why. Um, the problem is that his critique can't stand up to its own critique. Uh, it critiques himself. Um, you, have psych you could have psychological reasons for believing in God, but you could also have psychological reasons for not believing in God. You could say that to believe in God is just a way to justify your behavior, but you could also say that not to believe in God could just be a way to justify your behavior. You can say any truth claim is a power trip, but here's the problem. Saying every truth claim except mine the power trip is the ultimate power trip. And that's ultimately what Marx is saying. 
ultimately, it's just another religion, right? That's all he's really presenting. All religion separates people. It's a way you oppress people. But mine doesn't. He's not explicitly saying that, but he's implicitly saying that. If you really want to take out the implications of what he's teaching, that's what it leaves you. It basically gives you another religion. It still leaves you stuck. And history has shown how some of those ideas have been played out, not necessarily by him directly, but by many others who took his ideas. And what happened? Working class rose up and became the power class and killed people and oppressed people. And even millions of people were killed as consequences of some of these ideas. Basically, the exact thing that he criticizes, he creates. It's just another religion. It still leaves us stuck. He's right on. He's right. And yet it doesn't help us. So what do we do? What does Jesus say about religion? And we're going to look. What does Jesus say about the church? We're going to look at uh, one of my favorite stories in the Bible. And every sermon I'm preaching on is always my favorite story in the Bible. But this one in particular is awesome. It's Jesus and the woman at the well. Johnny read it earlier for us in John chapter 4. And I just want to set this story up for you just a little bit so you understand um, kind of what is happening and who the Samaritans were and kind of just set the scene a little bit. I don't want you to be like you walked into the middle of the movie. How many of you have ever done that? Like you missed the first 10 minutes and you're like so confused. Like like, you missed like the first 15 minutes of Inception. You're just going to be there the whole time like what is going on? Like... I have no idea. So I don't want you to be like that. So to set the stage a little bit, who are the Samaritans? Who is Samaria? What is going on in the story? So the Samaritans, well, first of all, the Jewish nation a long time ago before this story was captured by the Babylonians. And so the Babylonians' philosophy was we're going to destroy you, destroy your city, and then we're going to take the brightest and best of your culture, and we're going to assimilate them into Babylonian culture. So not even a memory of your civilization is left. That was, that's how they did things. So you guys remember Daniel, Sh- uh, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, those guys, and all that story? Well, they were part of that elite of Jewish society that were taken to be assimilated into Babylonian culture. But they didn't necessarily take everybody. The Babylonians, they just really wanted to crush what they felt was the future of the nation, but they, they kind of left the outcast of Jewish society behind. So some people are survivors of that invasion, and they're sort of the marginalized of Jewish society, and they continue to live there, and, and then they intermarried with Assyrian exiles, and so the people, the Samaritans, basically, that come out, they're, they're a mixed Jewish and Assyrian race, and then They have kind of a mix of Jewish religion and customs and also Assyrian superstitions and other things. So they have this kind of mixed bag of faith and they are this mixed race of people. And then the Jews come back later after the Persians take over the Babylonians. And the Persians had a whole different philosophy. It's like, we're basically going to let you be you as long as you pay taxes. So, um, and so they let the Jews go back and reform their city. And when the Jews come back, the Samaritans aren't really so happy about it because they are kind of the power players in the region, and this completely changes their plan. So they actually threaten to attack the people rebuilding Jerusalem. And so there's not only this ethnic and religious difference, there's also this like hundreds of years grudge between the two nations because at the time, a critical time when Israel was trying to rebuild, and the Samaritans could have maybe helped, they actually opposed. And so there's this unforgiveness and this bitterness. And so Jews want nothing to do with Samaritans. So the Samaritans, they kind of live in their own little section in between Judea and Galilee, and Jews just don't go there. So it's, if you want to go from Judea to Galilee, which is the trip Jesus is taking in this story, it's more direct to go right through Samaria. 
But Jews always went around. They didn't go in Samaria. And you may be like, that's ridiculous. Okay. But tell me, do you have places even in this town or other towns that you don't go into because you don't like being that part of town? I'll confess that myself. I've driven a couple more blocks because I want to get to the quick trip that's in a little nicer neighborhood before I get out of my vehicle. What is that about? That's a slight form. That's really no different. That's a slight form of racism in my heart. Or, or a, just not even just racism in necessarily type of people, but just how I'm looking down at maybe a section of the city. That's messed up. That's what I'm talking about. It's not out there with them. It's in here with us. And so Jews, they drove around, but well, didn't drive. They didn't have cars. They walked around, cameled around, donkeyed around, whatever it might be, around Samaria. But Jesus, and I love how this story starts in John 4, verses 4 and 6. And it says, and he had to pass through Samaria. Jesus didn't really have to go through Samaria. Jews didn't go through Samaria. His disciples wouldn't have been excited about it. I'm sure they complained about it. Like, oh, we're going to go through Samaria? Um, but he's compelled to and Jesus was always about his father's business so there's a divine appointment for him in Samaria and he knows that and I think he wants to show his disciples something and so Jesus goes and he they get to Samaria and he sends his disciples into the city and I'm imagining as they stumble off to get food they're kind of grumbling like man we gotta go get food in Samaria like I can't believe we're here. And Jesus is, he's tired. And it's interesting because it also gives us this really human view of Jesus that, like us, he he got tired sometimes. He's been really busy ministering. If you read the, before this, I mean, tons of things have been happening in his ministry. You know, he's got, he's got opposition coming to him from the Pharisees. He's got kind of success and opposition all happening at once. And he's on this journey, and they're not in a limo or a private jet. He's, he's not that type of preacher. Um, and so he's walking, and he's tired, and he sits down at this well. And a woman comes out. And I think the thing that that teaches us, or the first point I want to make out of the story, is oftentimes being the church to people is inconvenient. And so Jesus is, you know, when you're tired, that is not the convenient time to talk to someone about faith, right? Like, or when you're running late or something like that. I had this happen a couple weeks ago. Um, my mornings are usually ridiculous because I try to cram like way too much stuff in before I actually have to go do stuff in the day. The other day I woke up at 5.30 and I felt late. And I was like, this is wrong. I'm, this is not okay. Um, so a couple weeks ago uh, in the morning, I think I grabbed some Starbucks or something by my house. And there was a lady as I'm walking to my vehicle that kind of calls my name. And I know you guys have all done this, right? So a stranger calls out to you and you have that brief moment where you can pretend like you didn't hear them and get in your car, or you can go respond to them. So I'm like, all right. And so I go and I see what this woman needs. And it was like early in the morning. It was like 5.30, 6 o'clock. The Starbucks had just opened. and She said she needed a ride to her house. And I don't know how she got there or what was going on. And then I had all these other, like, kind of religious reasons, excuses why I couldn't help, right? Like, I can't give a woman a ride alone in my car to her house. Like, I don't know this lady. Like, and that's valid, I guess, right? But no, it's really not. It's a religious excuse. And I knew that I was supposed to help her. And the, my other excuse in my head was, I'm, I'm running late. You know, like, I've got other things to do. I don't have time for this. And then I literally, like, I looked at my Starbucks cup in my hand. I was like, do I really want to be the Christian who's 
too busy, but somehow still had time for Starbucks and can't help this lady. And so I decided that I wouldn't. And I gave her a ride home and really didn't take that much time. She didn't really need a ride that far. And she told me some of her story. And she was visiting a town. She was in town because her mom had died and the funeral. And I was able to just hear a little bit of her story and tell her that Jesus loved her before I dropped her off at her house. In the end, not really that big a deal in my day. It really just took me about 15 minutes. But I almost didn't do it just because it was slightly inconvenient for me. And Jesus shows us that we can't do that. And I think it's in this, what stuck out to me as I thought about it later, is I think how many other times have I just kept going? And how many times have I had a day that just does not go according to plan and really the whole day has been God blowing up my plan so he can put me in someone's past. And by the time I get to their past, instead of being open to the spirit of God to minister to that person, I'm so frustrated by my plan being frustrated by God that I don't even, I'm not even looking for those opportunities. So Jesus is challenging us here. He's modeling for us that you're gonna, there's going to be times when you're tired, you're late, it's going to be inconvenient. But in those times, God is bringing people into your past. So oftentimes being the church to people can be inconvenient. The church must overcome social stigmatisms. Jesus asked her a simple question. He says, hey, can I have some water? Right? Pretty simple conversation opener. Makes sense at a well. And she is shocked. She says, how is it that you, a Jew, asked for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? So there's two things, right? She probably recognized that Jesus was a Jewish rabbi, probably by the way he dressed. And she knew that Jewish rabbis, not just, not just Jews in general, but especially Jewish rabbis, they don't talk to Samarians and they don't talk to women. Jesus is breaking social stigmatisms to reach this woman. And then Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. And I'm kind of thinking in her head at this point, she's like, living water, I could like stop this whole going to the well thing. Either this guy is crazy or he's got something incredibly awesome and I, I want to have in on it. And Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. For you've had five husbands, and the one that you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. And she answered with, I see that you are a prophet. Jesus read her mail. He knew everything about her. And it shocked her. The church should never exclude people from hearing the gospel. Jesus' timing on this is perfect to reach this woman because Jesus basically comes to the well at an odd point of the day. Um, if you think about it, none of these houses had running water, so the only way you get water is from the local community well. So kind of naturally, you're probably going to need some water in the morning, clean your kid's face off before they go to school or whatever, You know, make some breakfast maybe. You're going to need probably some water in the middle of the day again, right? And then you're probably going to need some water in the evening. So this lady, she's kind of coming in the lull of the day at the community well. She's doing that intentionally because this would have been kind of the community gathering place. And she's got a bad reputation in the community. People look down on her. And so she got sick of going to the well and hearing the whispers and seeing the glances. And so she decided, I'm just going to kind of sneak out here when nobody else is here. It's like, have you ever gone to a restaurant at like that lull time, like 3.30 in the afternoon, and there's like one server running the whole place because you're the only person there? 
Like, that's a great, by the way, if you ever want to apply to a job at a restaurant, that's when you go. If you show up at 7, the manager will laugh at you. I worked in a restaurant, I know. Um, just, that's a free pro tip right there. Um, so, she's coming because she feels ashamed and she doesn't want people around. And Jesus has put himself there intentionally. But he doesn't exclude her because she's a woman or because she's a Samaritan. He tells her the gospel. He tells her what? About himself, that he's living water. And what he's trying to do is show her that what she thinks she needs is just some water, but what she actually needs is him. And what she thinks she needs is just people to kind of ignore her existence, but what she actually needs is someone to truly accept her and love her with all her mess. And then the next kind of scene that I just think is so awesome in the story is the disciples walk back up as Jesus is talking to this woman. And and interesting enough, kind of before I, I share this point, I just find it interesting. After she says, I see that you're a prophet, and after Jesus has read her mail, she fires off like a hypothetical theological question. Oh, so I see that you're a prophet, so my people say that we worship at this place, and your people say that we worship at this place. And Jesus says, none of that matters, because the day is coming when all will worship me in spirit and in truth. And here's the deal. When we're ministering to people, <laughs> it's like surgery without anesthesia, right? That's the Holy Spirit's work. And sometimes Jesus is going to get you really close to somebody else's pain. And he's wanting to touch that pain. Right here, he didn't point that out to her because he wanted to poke at that thing in her past. He wants to heal that thing in her past. And sometimes when we are in people's lives, it's going to get messy and we're going to hit some nerves. And the defensive reaction is going to be to ask you some hypothetical, theological question that doesn't really matter. Jesus is not distracted by that. He gets her back to the point. And so um, I find that sometimes people will use theological questions as a defense mechanism. We have to remain focused on what really matters. And disciples come back and I just love how it words it says, but the, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, drops the bomb right here, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek, or why are you talking with her? You're not going to question Jesus, right? So they kind of like walk up. Ever walked up on like an awkward conversation, like two people fighting or something? You're like, okay, all right, I'll just hang here until this is over. That's, that's kind of how the disciples felt. They walked up, and they're like, whoa, Jesus is talking to a Samaritan woman. Like, what do we do? Do, we, do you think he knows? Like, should we like whisper in his ear? Like, she's a woman and a Samaritan. Um, so they're not sure what to do. So they just kind of stand there, and they marvel. And that's all Jesus wanted them to do. He wanted them to watch. He wanted to see him in action. And I think that's something that I love about the story is it's not just something Jesus says, but it's, we get to see Jesus loving people. And I don't think this was an isolated incident, right? There was lots of women at the well that Jesus ministered to. One of the Gospels said if we had all the stories of him uh, basically, you couldn't contain it, what it what would be all written down. So Jesus was constantly doing this type of thing. I think this was just a really good snapshot of how Jesus operated, and that's why John put it in. So what Jesus teaches us in this story is that the church, in spite of her flaws, is really beautiful. 
wonderful things have been done in the name of Jesus. Uh, hospitals, orphanages, recovery centers, and countless other organizations have been birthed from the church. Something I find interesting is that the early church, in the time of that they were in, the Romans would just basically throw some babies just out in the trash, especially if you had a girl. Just throw them out in the back alley. So the early church started grabbing those babies and adopting them. And that was kind of a new cultural thing to adopt a child. That, that society had a really low view of children. And the church flipped that on the head. Now, you also see the early church flipping other social things on its head. So the early church had servants that were deacons in the church, and their masters were in the same church, but serving under their servant in the church. And everything got flipped around. The early church was completely countercultural, and that is what the church is supposed to be. When the church is living out truth, it should cause people to marvel like those disciples did. Jesus demonstrates to church you might be tired or inconvenienced, but you may end up sharing life with someone who isn't socially acceptable, but the gospel is always worth it. The next thing I love about this story is Jesus apparently didn't go through Samaria because he was looking for the quickest route because he stayed for two days. He stayed for two days. He continued to talk to the people of Samaria. I'm thinking they had some awesome Samaritan barbecues, and he heard some Samaritan jokes, which probably didn't make any sense to Jesus' culture because I don't know if you've ever been in a foreign country and you have someone translate a joke from you. Like, I've been in, like, Nicaragua, in Peru, and I've been with people, and they, like, tell a joke in Spanish, and then they translate it to me. It's, like, the most awkward thing in the world because I just, like, stare at them. I'm like, I don't get it, man. Like, jokes do not translate at all. So I'm thinking there was probably some awkward moments like that while Jesus hung out and stayed in people's houses. So he, he got to know them, right? Like, that's close. You stay in someone's house for two days, and you get to know their story here. Then that's what jesus did in that city he stays for two days and many samaritans hear the gospel and believe and so um as i close i just want to just ask a question to all of us who are you in this story are you the samaritan woman maybe you've been like her there's some there's some hurt or something in your past and maybe even when you've tried to maybe go to church or be a part of something or get around people that believe that way, it, it, it brings up pain that you don't want to deal with. And you feel like the church is poking at your pain instead of healing your pain. Maybe you've got some shame. You're feeling like an outcast. You're feeling alone like no one understands. If that's you in this story, then I believe Jesus is inviting you to believe and to accept his healing in your life. He's not poking at your pain. He wants to heal that pain. If you've been burned by the church, had bad experiences. I think any person who's been in church for maybe over a year probably has had a, somewhat of a bad experience in church. It happens because the church is full of imperfect people who, struggle with sin and pride and we say things and do things that we shouldn't but it's in that and God's grace and how Jesus loves his church that he works all that out in us so if you're that Samaritan woman then I believe your response today is to believe and to know that Jesus loves you 
Jesus didn't tell this woman, you have to stop being a Samaritan in order to believe in me. The gospel puts no cultural conditions on its message, and that's why it can transcend all cultures, all peoples, all races, all countries. Because it's not a Western religion, it's not an Eastern religion, it's not even a religion at all. It's the gospel of Jesus, and it's a person. So if you're a Samaritan woman, today your response can be to believe. Maybe you're the disciples. The disciples were great guys. They're doing all the right things. They're helping Jesus. They're serving every single day. They're on a traveling road ministry team crew. They're setting up, tearing down whatever it was Jesus sat up and teared down before he preached every day. And by all accounts, you'd look at them and be like, man, those guys, those guys are really awesome followers of Jesus. And, and they were. But yet, as you've seen in the story, they still didn't get it. Jesus, Jesus speaks to a Samaritan woman, and they're confused. They're perplexed. They, every day they've been with Jesus, and yet they still don't get what Jesus is about. And I'm telling you, we can be serving in the church. We can be doing all the right things. We can be reading our Bible, and we can still not get what Jesus is about. Jesus is about people, all people, not just the people that you think he likes or that are like you. Every person matters to Jesus. And so if that's you, and, and I know that's been me, and it is me, I think that's something that we constantly have to check our hearts in is, am I serving Jesus for me or am I serving Jesus for Jesus? Thank you for listening. If you'd like to get plugged into the ministry of Audacity or support this ministry financially, you can get more information at loveservego.com.